Greetings, Stephen Gray here. Welcome again to Stephen Gray Vision YouTube channel and also available as an audio podcast on anchor.fm. Now, normally when you see my face here, it would be by way of entering pretty soon into an interview with a leading spokesperson in the field of psychedelics. However, well, this will actually happen. However, uh, I felt like I needed to put a little intro in because uh, this one that you are about to watch is different. It's because I've been doing co-productions with Mark Caron from uh, our mutual organization, Spirit Plant Medicine, associated with the conference, Spirit Plant Medicine Conference. And we've been interviewing the same kind of people that I would have been interviewing on my own, but just so that you didn't get confused when you saw, when you, when you would see Mark come on as the first person to speak, I just wanted to welcome you in this way. And so we go on from here. Hello and welcome to Conscious Living Radio. My name is Mark Curran and today we are here uh, pre-recording as always because the radio station is still in lockdown. It's not open downtown in downtown Vancouver and that would be 100.5 FM CFRO in Vancouver. And today we are talking about spirit plant medicine again. It's that time of the year where our conference is coming up and I'm here with my special co-host on the program today, Mr. Stephen Gray, to announce our very special guest that we're really excited about. So Stephen, over to you. Sure. Well, um, yes, indeed. Uh, this is not an exaggeration to say special guest today. Um, there aren't a lot of people around, uh, well, you know, apart from celebrities and politicians who um, you can honestly say need no introduction, but Paul Stamets is uh, approaching that category, I would say. He's uh, involved in many things around the world these days. Uh, nonetheless, uh, a short bio for him as a, uh, by way of introduction. He's a world-renowned expert on the medicinal, edible, environmental, and spiritual uses and benefits of mushrooms. His walk through life has followed mycelial paths that have led to stunning breakthroughs. He's discovered and named numerous new species of psilocybin mushrooms. Paul is the author of six books, including Mycelium Running and the go-to compendium Psilocybin Mushrooms of the World. He's also editor and contributor to the recent book Fantastic Fungi and central to the remarkable documentary film of the same name directed by Louis Schwartzberg or Louis Schwartzberg. And um, uh, I have read this book. Uh, well, the film, by the way, um, is, tru is truly remarkable. Uh, my wife and I have seen it twice. It's brilliant if you haven't seen it. It's just beautiful and full of great information on many things to do with mushrooms. And this book, which I have read recently, is also quite remarkable. So uh, welcome, Paul, and it really is an honor to have you with us. I know how busy you are in your life, and so uh, it's very much appreciated to have you take this time with us. Well, thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Mark. I'm honored to be here. Great. So I mentioned that I have um, a number of questions from the book, but also that, you know, take it anywhere. So let me fire out a question and you can go anywhere you want with it. Um, or I, I, what I did was I took down quotes from the book, actually. Um, and so uh, uh, one of them near the beginning was um, by Richard Lowe. And it was, what are the, uh, the question is, what are the implications of what he called, quote, nature deficit disorder? Well, that's a great question, and it's something that, you know, someone else coined it. I don't remember the person. He spoke at Bioneers a number of years ago, but 
it really speaks to the fact that we are uh, now uh, several degrees uh, removed from being in intimate contact with nature, especially people living in cities, et cetera. And the uh, nature deficit syndrome just I think, speaks from uh, the fact that we are uh, suffering now, um, not only in terms of our health, but psychologically from being uh, not in the woods, not in contact with nature, not in contact with soil. Know that children's contact with soil is extremely important for their immune system and reducing allergies. And we live in increasingly sterilized environments or environments where the microbiomes of those ecosystems are artificial and they're not, um, they're not compatible with the natural bi microbiomes that have given us uh, our to date evolutionary advantage, though some could argue against that now. And so I think it's really important that we look at the fact that we are an organism that has existed and evolved within natural ecosystems that have a complexity of species. And as we lose species complexity, it's like losing rivets out of an airplane, we begin to unravel uh, the very uh, foundation of the natural systems that have given us health. Now, very specifically what that means is that we are losing more than 30,000 species per year um, and about 8.5 million species on this planet that are estimated. So in 100 years, that's more than a third of the biodiversity that's gotten us here today. So when we have the sudden catastrophic loss you know, of the members and the microbial and the community, uh, the mi microorganisms as well as macroorganisms, um, these macroorganisms are more sexy. You can see them, you know, lions and tigers and other, you know, birds and things like that. But what's really unraveling underneath our feet is the loss of uh, the diversity in the soils. And the soils are created by fungi. And um, as we do um, clear cuts and we cut down the forest, we are dismantling the food that the fungi need to create soils. And where do your soils come from? They come from fungi. What fungi need to consume? They need to consume, and in, to a large degree, decompose wood. Um, and when we deforest the environment, we're removing the menu of food that's necessary for the fungi to build the soils. So fungi are the foundation of the food web. And by eliminating the, the, uh, the, the food that these fungi need, we are impairing our food systems. And so this is really important that we re-engage nature on a most elemental form. And as Jane Goodall said just recently, which I was quite surprised, but I think she was absolutely correct, is that factory farming uh, could threaten and is threatening the existence of the human species. Um, this is something that uh, we have to understand that our industrialization of agriculture, our industrialization of our food supply come at a cost. It's not sustainable. And the sustainability of ecosystems with their complexity gives us long-term benefit that we are right now uh, destroying. And so that's what I think is re relates to this nature deficit syndrome is we're not engaging nature uh, in respecting the metrics that give us, for instance, in a forest is way beyond timber board feet of lumber. That is such a myopic, narrow view of the value of the forest. What about its biodiversity? What about its clean water? 
What about the cooling effect in the carbon sink? Well, what about recreational possibilities? What about teaching children about nature so they don't have nature deficit syndrome? Um, these are all things that add a quality of life that we are not economically uh, have created the metric of measurement. Instead, the industrialization of the forest, looking at solely in terms of timberboard feet of lumber, is the metric that economists and policymakers are using to make drastic decisions that affect our future. Mm, yeah. Well, um, the, uh, the the next kind, you know, few quotes that I took out of the book are directly related to that, and you've already alluded to them. But let me fire them at you anyway, because maybe you can take it even further. Uh, this one is from you, from the book, and it's, uh, the future of planetary stability may depend on the convergence of human consciousness with mycelial intelligence. Can you elaborate on that? <laughs> <laughs> of course you can. <laughs> well, you know, a, there is a revolution literally from the underground, which I'm happy to say that our expanding community of people, people are, are recognizing around the world the value of mycelium. Uh, there is just thousands of younger people in particular that are looking at mycelium for biomaterials, for, uh, for replacing styrofoam, for new building materials, um, new ways of being able to uh, support re regenerative farming. Um, there's so many different, um, because the mycelium's um, network-like design is designed in a way, that, um, we, we split from fungi about 650 million years ago. Uh, fung fungi gave birth to animals. We are animals. Anybody wanted to see on that? <laughs> but fungi gave birth. To, fungi gave birth to animals, and the fungi went underground. They extracellularly uh, digest its nutrients, bringing nutrients directly into the cell through the cell walls. Um, animals, on the other hand, when we split, encapsulate our nutrients in cellular sac, and then we produce enzymes and we digest foods within a cellular sac. And that was pretty much, in rough terms, uh, the, 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 the fork in the road, so to speak, that gave birth uh, to, uh, to the animals. Well, these underground networks are elaborated uh, uh, with the very, very fine fibers. And we know epigenetically now in a swath, and we actually did the math, and I spoke to this on the film, and actually I had one of these moments like, oh no, I may have missed something. Because I, in the film, I read my hands out, and I say, in a swath of ground this wide, uh, there can be trillions, literally trillions of end branches uh, um, of mycelium. And then I, I was at the rough cut in the movie going, I th I'm pretty sure that's true, but I wasn't quite, quite you know, convinced. Because uh, I couldn't recall all the math on it, so I reached out to my uh, another mycologist who's a mathematical mycologist uh, named Nick Money, who's a, from Ohio University, and he goes, "Well, oh, that's a great question. I'm bored today, so I've, let me do the calculations." He came back and he goes, "Well, actually, you understated it. It's about eight trillion uh, uh, connections." Mm -hmm. um, but that speaks because these network-like design, they're microfilters, they're, they're not only capturing flow of nutrients carried by water, they're not only creating water. Many people don't know this. 10 to 20% of the mycelium, when it digests a substrate, that substrate becomes water. So mm -hmm. it actually hydrates the environment as it digests. And so this is why spongy habitats of mycelium retain water. Uh, they have a lot more moisture uh, in the soil, which benefits, of course, the plurality of species that give rise to the of the trees and the foliage that then creates the debris fields to feed the mycelium. So the deterministically, 
trying to create habitats that support a plurality and biodiversity of species because the more species that you have, the more skill sets these different species have to respond to certain challenges. So the mycelium sets up guilds, uh, guilds of cooperating members that then as a complex community can march forward to be sustainable for the benefit of those uh, that community and to resist as a host defense of communities against pathogens that can disrupt homeostasis. So these things are very deterministic uh, in, in the way they're able to grow and produce. Epigenetically, what happens when there's a trillion endpoints, you know, of, in a meter diameter swath of mycelium, they're like little scientists at the endpoints of the hyphae, the little ends of the mycelium. And if they encounter a new toxin, a new pesticide, a, you know, a new alien food, a new chemical toxin of any sort, if it can code for the new enzymes that can break that down for a new food source, what happens, which is really cool, is what happens is then the mycelium fans out and grows. It's able to grow because it produces those enzymes that can break down the material as a new food source. And then epigenetically, the coding of those, of those genes that are now created to digest that new food source then goes back into the mycelium. So the mycelium becomes educated. So you have basically trillions of little scientists, you know, constantly doing experiments. And if they discover something, the community benefits. So this is why the mycelium is a network-based design, and I believe the invention of the computer internet is an inevitable consequence of networks that have shown through evolution to be we're more resilient. And so we're building off the successes that, that we've already seen in nature. And network-based organisms, I think, will be found throughout the cosmos. This is the way of nature, not the exception. You know, I, I believe that Matter begets life, life becomes single cells, single cells grow up, they branch, uh, they rebranch, then they encounter other networks and mosaics or overlying networks, then cooperate with compa uh, compatible guilds of organisms. They have a truce, they have a relationship, and they synergize and pff, oasis environments then begin to expand. Uh, so I think these fungal networks tapping into their innate network-like design and attaches into an innate intelligence of nature that has been proven over literally billions of years. Wow, very impressive stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, I, as I say, I you know, wrote down a number of quotes and you've already been alluding to some of them, so maybe I'll fire two out at you that are relevant to what you were just talking about and see where you go with those. Uh, one, they're both quotes to you, from you, Paul. Uh, one is the story of fungi, uh, well, you say, f I say fun fun fungi, you say fungi. <laughs> um, let's call the it's whole thing. What's that? Yeah, the, Oxford, the Oxford English Dictionary is fungi. Okay. The J. Cool. All right. But if you're from Spain or Mexico, it's, it's fungi. Or from Italy, it's fungi. So it, it doesn't matter. They're all correct. Right on. <laughs> okay, so here's two. The story of fungi is the story of essential unity. That's a quote from you from the book. And another one, survival depends not on the fittest, but on the collective, which I think you just alluded to a moment ago. Do you want to take off a little from there? Yeah, I, I very much know and believe that there are some things as a scientist over the years, you have these, you know, these, these truths that are just self-apparent that our communities expand and are resilient because of the extension of generosity of surplus. 
I have more food than my neighbor does. I have more firewood just recently. I gave hmm. several cords of firewood to people. I have a lot of firewood right now. I have more firewood than I need. And these neighbors of mine, um, disabled, one of them, older First Nation, by giving them firewood is an example of my extension of generosity to help the community. Well, that's a simple little example, but it can be elaborated in a million ways. We create guilds of, of members in community that are cooperating individuals who seek to not only sustain themselves, but through their efforts by set or circumstance or coincidence or good luck or just skill, they have a surplus beyond their needs. That can be shared with a community of people who don't have those same assets or same abilities. They may have other abilities that they share. So the reciprocity of generosity builds communities. And that I think is really the redefines this whole concept of Darwinian evolution as being the, the, the survival of the fittest. It's not. It's the survival of communities of the generosity of the individuals who share resources. And I think this is the whole basis of how we got here today. And I think this is the basis of how we will get into the future. Now, I am not at all, I'm a, I'm a capitalist. I, you know, I believe in, and my efforts should be rewarded. Um, but how much do I need? I mean, how many toys do I need? I mean, how much do I really need? So I, I definitely believe that I should, you know, get credit for my work. I work hard, I work hard, but, but then sometimes, I get an avalanche way beyond my own needs. It just seems, seems to be morally right that I share that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, why be stingy with resources you don't need? Mm -hmm. How many toys you need in your sandbox? The, the kid next door in the sandbox didn't have any. And yeah. by that, that generosity, you make people feel happy. You make people feel respected. They want to do something for you in return. So one of my greatest bumper stickers that I that I have, and I actually etched it on my wall, is uh, to remember to practice random acts of kindness. Oh, yeah. And I think the random acts of kindness mantra, whoever made that up, is is so true to my life. And I never will achieve the level that I aspire to, but I will certainly try to. And um, but given that, at the same time, you will don't want to be exploited that people who expect you to do that, but they don't pull their share. So no freeloaders here, folks, you know, you work hard, we all work hard, we share hard, we build our respect for each other stronger as a community. Yeah, and so, ahead, Mark, yeah. Well, I have a question around that because I love what you're saying and I completely agree with that. How do we, you know, random acts of kindness working in community, how do we inspire maybe a more, I guess the word is more quickly, global change around that philosophy because we've got, you know, as you say, being a capitalist, you know, we've got that going on everywhere, but how do we inspire that? So, you know, the people who have more share more. Two words, psilocybin mushrooms. <laughs> Good one. I love it. <clears throat> yeah, no, and, and so. The, 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 the message that most of us receive from a hero's journey on psilocybin mushrooms is the, the, is the unity of being, the unity of shared consciousness, of shared responsibility. When we have the empathy and concern for our fellow citizens, for the other, and I mean just people, 
but species uh, in the ecosystem. When we have that understanding of the collective consciousness and the, the fact that we have individual responsibility and capabilities, then I think that is the, the, what's happening right now. There's a revolution from the underground. There's a revolution for the freedom of consciousness. And what's happening now, especially with the psilocybin mushrooms, is that it makes nicer people. Uh, we have preliminary evidence that it makes smarter people. Mm. I think psilocybin uh, mushrooms and psilocybin analogs, besides psilocybin and psilocin, are Einstein molecules. Mm. I believe they increase intelligence. We need to increase our intelligence to have the creativity to create the solutions that can get us out of the mess today. Is that currently the people who are piloting, who are captains, you know, uh, of of our economic futures, are misguiding us. You know, it is truly a train wreck that we're experiencing, and it's now for us to to, to go over control of the navigation systems of the of the principal players uh, on this planet that are misdirecting the resources. Um, and, and threatening the commons. And you, you threaten the commons, you threaten the soil, you threaten biodiversity, you ultimately threaten your own children's lives. And so this whole concept that First Nations have of seven generations is more than right on. It is solidly defined now by science that the implications that we, of what our actions today reverberate throughout time. And I feel the call of my ancestors and the call of my descendants uh, for us to wake up and do something about this. So the good news is and I have a few slides that I would like to show that are part of this narrative. And I don't know if that's appropriate now, Stephen, or you want to ask me a few more questions? No, go for it, Paul, yeah. please. Okay, I will uh, let's see if I can get here. Whoops, well, that's not you. Hold on. So um, I, I believe that the foundation that we have of the therapeutic benefits of psilocybin supported by science, and I live in a science-based reality. I believe in science. I believe in facts. Um, I also believe in when you have multiple, multiple experts in different universities, all having a course uh, of, of conclusions that are validating each other's studies is not a one-off. It's not like an exceptional result. Mm -hmm. So uh, our good friend, uh, Mark Hayden, uh, the founder of MAPS Canada, uh, initially put this together. It was a really impactful slide. So Mark and I worked together and I could add some more things because uh, these are just basically the universities and institutions that are currently doing research on psilocybin and, and psychedelics. And then um, my good friend and partner, Dr. Pam Crisco, who's a co-founder of the Canadian Psychedelic Association, we put together two more slides. And this is just the North American institutions involved in psilocybin research. Now, look, this is Stanford, John Hopkins, you know, Yale University, New York School of Medicine, Mount Sinai. Um, this is the University of British Columbia. These have all gone through peer review. They've all gone through IRBs, institutional review boards, to physicians to, to make sure of essentially three things. Um, is, is the suggested clinical study uh, based on good science? Uh, 
Um, is there a, a, a very low risk of harm? And then can it address a societal problem or a health issue that is desperately needed that's not currently being adequately addressed by other medicines? Well, those, those are three primary criteria. There are more. And so this is amazing. And this is why I want physicians or those who are skeptics out there to pay attention. This is just not one institution or two institutions. We have up to 47 institutions around the world now currently doing research on psilocybin mushrooms uh, for good reason, not only for PTSD and depression, but now it's elaborating into many other issues of concern that basically are related to your neurological health. Um, and as you have neurodegeneration, it, it represents itself in many disease states, you know, from lack of coordination, memory to, to uh, Alzheimer's, uh, to mood, uh, depression, uh, creativity, all those things are unfolded. So, and then, <clears throat> uh, so that was not a COVID cough. That was a cannabis cough. <laughs> disclosure here okay yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Not that I, I haven't smoked yet today but you know after this interview i definitely will, will. <laughs> um, i love that we have the freedom to be able to say that so so any of the universities in in europe and the other the colleges in europe i mean it goes on and on right so this is really amazing um that we have come to this point in time and, and with the uh, the science and understanding of the use of psilocybin that they can be so beneficial um, and that literally hundreds, if not thousands of physicians objectively looking at the research, um, putting their prejudices aside uh, from preconceived notions and just looking at their research have all come to the same conclusion. So mm -hmm. I think this represents a, a revolution in the sciences to recognize that psilocybin can have a major impact and improving, uh, you know, mood and creativity. And I have more to say on that. And um, and you're probably familiar with the Theracil movement. Um, oh, sorry, which and, movement? Uh, the Theracil movement? Yes. The ther I'm not. Therapeutic. No. Mm -hmm. You're not? Well, with your permission, um, I'd like to show a short little video um, for the individuals who are facing uh, their imminent death. And all of us will share uh, in this experience, you know, unless you have a sudden accident, but if you, most of us will see our death coming and you have to reconcile, what does it mean? What does it mean to have been born? What does it mean to die? These are the, the questions that may never be able to be answered, but the, the anxiety that people feel facing their death is real. I've lost my brother, I've lost my mother, I've lost my father. I was with my father and my mother to the moment they died. And many of the listeners here have gone through the same experience. This is just fundamental uh, and for being compassionate at the end of your life. And um, what law enforcement officer is going to arrest you for possession of psilocybin when you're on your deathbed. I suggest that's not a very good career move. Um, and this is why 
and it speaks to compassion. So, you know, this is a short little video I want to share, uh, followed up by a second video. That was very, it's very difficult to get, to wrap your head around. I'm, I'm dying. The chances are that I'm not going to be around in a couple of years. heard about a network in Vancouver of therapists who are uh, treating patients with psilocybin, patients with anxiety and deal, who are dealing with life and death issues. And I thought that really sounds interesting to me and, and there's no danger. I'm there with two other people in the room. And uh, so it's something I wanna, it's worth trying because I, I need to be able to enjoy my life. And all of a sudden, everything was light and, and beautiful and warm. And, and uh, I felt just this rush of warmth and love and, and just peace come over me as, as the lights came up. I'm so fortunate that I had those connections that I heard about this uh, network of therapists that are willing to risk their licenses to treat people with this drug that's not, not legal. And I think it's so wrong that people don't have access to this because people are in pain and dying and uh, or PTSD or depression and which studies show psilocybin helps all of those things and why are we not allowing people to have this drug but we allow them to have other drugs that are so harmful we have given people the right to die and and I think that's great. It's, I don't know if I'll be free enough to choose the option if the time comes. Um, but it's there for people when they, if they need it. But what about living? What do we do in between that part in the process of dying? It's a long process sometimes. So how are we gonna help people through it? Do we want people to be living with the anxiety and fear? Or do we want to provide them a way to be able to deal, deal with things that need to be dealt with in their life that are painful and hard, um, but also be able to experience the love and joy and peace that, that this is provided to me and to other people that I've talked to. This trip actually changed everything for me because now I'm able to live each day just with peace and joy and love every day and, and not have this thing weigh on me. I feel so much healthier and lighter in a, in a way, even though I have this thing inside me that killed me. But like I said, today I'm not gonna die, I'm good. And that's all, that's all I must have.
she's the, she's the most eloquent spokesman, uh, spokeswoman uh, that I've ever heard uh, for this. And I have a minute um, contribution that I did at the request of Therosil as well, which a movement here in British Columbia to give psilocybin um, to end life patients. And the Canadian government now has given exemptions uh, for legal use now to five or six um, end of life patients. And I want to applaud the Canadian government for seeing the wisdom of this. Um, it's being administered very carefully, uh, therapeutically with professionals. Um, but, you know, this is something that my father died in a state of fear and high anxiety. It was not pleasant to see folks. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all going to die. Do you want to face your death with optimism and happiness and gratitude? <laughs> or do you want to face your death with regret, fear, and anger? I mean, that's really a that's, a, that's literally the fork in the road. And I think uh, for many of us, experience such as she has had um, send us, sends us on our way in our journey um, in a healthier and happier way. It affects everybody in your family and your community, your cousins and your neighbors. And the grief, you know, is like a pebble in a pond just reverberates out. You want those reverberations to be one of, of, a, of terror, fear and regret? that harms you psychologically with a form of PTSD, or you're gonna go out and going, oh my gosh, I've had several friends that have gone out with such courage, you know? Uh, a good friend of mine, Dr. Manuel Salzman, an MD from, um, from Denver, Colorado, um, and his son asked, this is kind of personal, I don't think he, he would mind, but his son asked his dad, dad, how are you doing today? His dad goes, I'm doing great, and died. (laughs) And he was was a tripper, right? He had come to, like, it's a great day. And literally, after those few last words, died. (laughs) I'm doing great. So anyhow, humor aside, but humor is important. Um, Sincerity of of this subject you know is of course really important so here's a short video by me there's two things certain in life we are born and we die where we come from where are we going with the psilocybin mushroom experience you suddenly know that you're part of a gent oneness and it gives you context and consolation about your own mortality so i think it's critically important that at the end of your life, you have a right to these substances. Who dares say that you do not? When these have been used for thousands, probably tens of thousands, maybe millions of years, and laws have been created to ostracize people, to use them only in the past 50 years? I mean, it's, it's, it, it's not only academically naive, it's immoral. And it's, I, I think that everyone has a right to gonna leave this life. Okay, I I want to get I have some other slides to show, but um, I want to bring back the conversation here, mm-hmm. and oh. uh, so but I do have something else I really want to show you, but I want to put that on pause um, and, and continue our dialogue. Sure. Well, one one question I do have, like that was she was magnificent, really touching and 
her experience, like you said, you know, just eloquent in, in how she was speaking. Now, I, I did notice she used the word drug a couple of times and magic mushrooms being a, a fungi. What's the difference when you get into, you know, a, a theracil, like a, a like a, a drug versus an actual mushroom? Well, that's exactly what I was going to talk about next. Um, uh, <laughs> I could just jump to that. But yeah, that, you bring up a really good point is um, this magic bullet single molecule approach definitely has its, its usefulness. Uh, the cause and effect um, can be disambiguated um, from other potential confounders, things that can confound the conclusion. Because when you take a natural product, what was the active ingredient? Um, and what's the cause and effect? Well, you know, no matter what happens with our laws, 99.9% .9 of people will be taking magic mushroom, not pure psilocybin. Okay, that's the fact. Um, and the one of the reasons why the FDA approved psilocybin, interestingly, and their justification for approval of psilocybin therapeutically by the FDA. They cite the multi-thousand-year history of use of magic shrooms. Okay, so that and then they approve psilocybin as the active ingredient. But then, ironically, we have to make the argument why magic mushrooms are safe uh, because they contain psilocybin, but they contain these other substances. So, how do you standardize a magic mushroom to an active ingredient, and do you need to standardize it to one? or multiple in active ingredients. It's not psilocybin and psilocybin mushrooms that gives you neurogenic benefit. So I would like to show you exactly what I mean by that. And um, can I go ahead and go yeah. yes, of course. You have free reign, my friend. Absolutely. Okay. We're Here along we for the again. ride. Exactly. The Stanford Luddite is gonna to try to do this again. Well, um, so far so good. <laughs> Well, I've had, I'm going to skip a whole bunch of ones and I wanted to just come to, I think, um, I'll start with this here. So we, there is a mushroom called lion's mane, which is very uh, powerful in its uh, neurogenic properties as defined by neurite alkros. These are pluripotent cells. We did research with a company in, in France called Neurofit that analyzes drugs to fight Alzheimer's. So there's something called BDNF. It's a, a genes express it that excite neurons to grow. But you can extract this from the endoreticulum uh, coming from you know, animals and whatnot. And they basically spike the in vitro to, to see if you can stimulate neurons to grow. So the control is just saline. And then the BDNF is the kind of the gold standard. They can, and then compared the, the mycelium of lion and it increased uh, neurogenesis as defined neurite outgrowth. I want to be careful about that uh, by 8%. Interesting, the fruit body extract, the extract of the mushrooms actually slowed neurogenesis. That's really important that people understand. Two sides of the same coin, mm. the mycelium stimulated neurogenesis, the fruit body extracts actually slowed below uh, baseline. So anyhow, this is um, over seven days, then a sextipulate. We have done these, these you'll see, we've done these uh, tests now uh, several, several times, I think six times now. We started looking at lion's mane 
and then three psilocybin analogs, which are legal. These are things that co-occur in psilocybin mushrooms. There's about 116 species in the genus Psilocybe. The genus holds the most psilocybin mushrooms. And there's about two, uh, 216 species of mushrooms that contain psilocybin. So the vast ma the majority of them are in the genus Psilocybe. So, and the most common one used is Psilocybe cubensis. But Psilocybe cubensis um, contains um, the psilocybin analogs, baocystin, norbaocystin, and norcilocin. And so when we, the extracts of the mycelium, it is in this case, before it was 108%, now it's 111% within the margin of error. So increase the uh, brain neurons to, to regrow uh, above baseline. Uh, the BDNF went to, you know, 42%, but these psilocybin analogs also stimulate neurogenesis. Now, we are the first ones, I believe, ever to show this. If anyone can prove me, please get a hold of me. I want to know. Hmm. The first ones that show that psilocybin analogs stimulate neurons to proliferate. Um, so we looked at these three analogs, and then we went ahead and we started stacking them. Lion's mane which is an edible choice mushroom commonly available. Many companies sell supplements. So of course, make sure you get the mycelium, obviously, if, if you want cognitive enhancement. <laughs> um, so, um, but then if we stack uh, one of these analogs uh, with a lion's mane, other than getting 22%, um, which would be the expected arithmetic uh, cumulative effect, you know, 118 and 107, you add the numbers up 122, we got 30, 136. So we got the entourage effect, synergy, mm -hmm. showing that we actually stimulated more neurogenesis by combining these two, these two mushrooms, basically, analogs from these mushrooms with lion's mane. So we went ahead and we have also been working with Harvard Medical School, and we found profound anti-inflammatory properties um, with lion's mane. This act reinforces some other research. Um, and we are ongoing with Harvard right now, very exciting projects. I'm bound confidentiality to speak of them, but I will just tell you to stay tuned. Uh, uh, we have a number of research papers that will be coming out, peer-reviewed journals, and we're, we're very excited and very grateful to Harvard Medical School and particularly Rudy Tanzi uh, for a leap of faith in, uh, in testing our samples. We sent many samples blinded, then we unmasked them. And uh, lion's mane turned out to be one of the most profound ones because you're not only getting regrowth of neurons, but it's having anti-inflammatory properties. And the inflammatory consequences of both causing dementia, causing Alzheimer's, and subsequently, it's a slippery slope. And so uh, neuroinflammation uh, causes more neuroinflammation. As you might imagine, anything or dying of the nerves has an inflammatory response all the way up the body, and as a result, it's highly painful. So I came up with a stacking formula um, of combining psilocybin uh, mushrooms uh, with lion's mane, mycelium, and I stack it with niacin, the vitamin B3. Um, I did this specifically for three reasons. One is it becomes like the antibuse. A microdose is subsensorium. It's below the threshold feeling something. With 50 to 100 milligrams of niacin with a below threshold dose of psilocybin, then if you try to take 10 times as much, you'd be taking a whole gram of vitamin B3. Most of us has had vitamin B3 flushes before. Your skin is itching. It's very uncomfortable. You're, you're red. I haven't experienced this. It's 
You know? I have to, yeah. <laughs> well, I get some. You, you, you can, it's short last about an hour or so, maybe two hours. But so because of that flushing, because it's so uh, irritable, it's a, it becomes an anti abuse effect. So people don't me megadose on a microdose. Well, also because of the itching and excitation of the of the nerves, it means that I wanted to bring in a vasodilator. I wanted to bring these beneficial compounds from lion's mane psilocybin to the endpoints of the nervous system. Neuropathies oftentimes present themselves to deadening of the fingers and the toes. So the idea is is and also vitamin B3 has anti-inflammatory properties and it also has been implicated in having neurogenic properties. Mm. So there's really four reasons for combining the vitamin B3 um, with this. So um, now James Fadiman, a good friend of mine, he has the Fadiman protocol, I have my protocol. Um, he's doing it one day on, two or three days off and repeat. I'm, I'm suggesting, and these are both hypotheses, we don't know without the data. <laughs> but we're collecting the data. And full disclosure, I contributed some money to a quantified citizen to develop this app. It's called microdo.me. It's available only on the iPhones. It's free. Um, it's totally anonymous. It's passed peer review uh, and ethics. And this is a way of you being able to monitor your cognitive functions, your neurological state of being with many metrics. And so I'll just, this is only about 20 seconds long. But what comes after this is really important for you to know. And so you sign up uh, through Quantified Citizen on the Apple app. And it, what are you microdosing with? How much are you taking? Uh, are you stacking it with lion's mane, niacin, chocolate? Um, you know, and so you go, and then it has these little memory tests. Well, like, can you then light up the flowers in the same way? And they scores you. And then it's got a vision acuity test. It's got an auto test for hearing. We're all going to go downhill, folks, with age. And so this, and, and then even people who have not microdosed are engaged in this study. On the Joe Rogan podcast, I mentioned this, and um, over 12,000 people have signed up for this. And so we are now working with the University of Columbia uh, Zach Walsh, who I think you know, mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Pesco, um, and we define these microdoses as at less than a tenth of gram of psilocybin cubensis. Uh, that's 16% of respondents. Medium dose is one tenth of a third, and high dose is more than a third. I don't think a third of a gram of, of cubensis for me is a microdose. I feel it. If you can mm -hmm. feel it, the definition is not a microdose. But yeah. most people in the medium dose range, there's no noticeable effect except you might feel a little bit in a better mood but there's not no intoxicating effect you can't say that well I, i'm high so it's subsensorium below the threshold of sensing yep so can I, can I interrupt for a second um just um you know while we're on this in case we get away from it uh um uh i know that your partner pam crisco is going to be speaking about microdosing at the conference and in your book i forget which author i didn't write down which author but one of the authors said there is no good research that confirms the uh, efficacy of microdosing could you speak about that I, please? Oh, I was uh, alert that author to watch our interview right now because this is what i'm going to show you yeah. we have the first evidence 
and I want to just, we, uh, we had 3,486 psilocybin users in this app. Ismael and Caitlin are the two coaches who started Quantified Citizen who approached Dr. Pam and I. And then we assuaged the metrics on it and contributed to this organization. Now we have also non-microdosers that came in. So as a baseline, they weren't doing any microdosing. So it's a pretty big data set. We had 12,000 people uh, and, and 3,500 people approximately on with psilocybin. And then we have a one month window, a two month and three months. The data I'm gonna show you with, from our, uh, our group here, it's just not, not me, this is our collective uh, co-authors. Um, so this is, a, this is compared non-microdoses versus microdoses. Now look at the, look at the, uh, at the value of significance. It's point, less than 0 0.001. For those who don't know, p-value is a 0 0.05, gives you 95% confidence, the data is strong. 0 0.01, 99. 0 0.001 is 99.9% .9 confidence. The, the change in mental health in terms of depression uh, basically did not change. But those people who are microdosing, when they unmask the data and they crunch this, and, uh, and you know, Zach Walt and his research assistant, Joey, or the... Or the uh, are the ones that are, are doing these statistics on this, that a tremendous reduction in depression. So you said there's no data? Okay, there's a data point. This is a large data set. We'll, we'll look at another one. Mood, increasing in mood. So you have an extraordinary significance in the increase of positive mood and negative mood. You can see baseline, is the non-microdosing people, the dark blue line, basically flat. And then negative mood, but you only have positive mood, you have negative mood. This is the positive and negative scale, PANAS, um, which is a, one of the other scales that are used psychiatrically to, to, to determine whether people are depressed or anxiety. And so then we also looked at stacking it with lion's mane. And, um, and it's important to know that all the studies in lion's mane that have been published clinically are eight, 12, 16, and 49 weeks. This is a four week window. The good news to me is it's not contraindicated. It's not going against. So it's a little bit better, but not statistically significant, but we don't expect to see that. And the other studies have not shown the benefit of lion's mane until you push it out beyond four weeks. So when you go back to where's the evidence, this is the first microdosing study uh, that's doing a meta-analysis. And what I'd like to point out is that, and despite the variability in the dosage, despite the variability in the amount of psilocybin in the mushroom samples that people were consuming, and despite the receptivity of the individuals, many of us know someone will take two grams or three grams of psilocybin cubensis, they'll feel a strong effect, other people feel no effect. So despite those three confounders, there's substantial signal above the noise. When we re refine this data set, which we are doing, you know, funneling down, and we still have, you know, large numbers of participants here, um, in some cases, hundreds of participants, when we carving down and taking away those other confounders, then the significance values are likely to even to be stronger. So this is huge. Psilocybin mushrooms, with the Baocystin, Norbeocystin, uh, and Norcilocin.
and other compounds are giving a statistically significant result. And I dare say this, and again, prove me if I'm wrong, of a better therapeutic output in terms of depression of any, any drug heretofore ever discovered or tested, even that of pure psilocybin. So this is an extraordinary result, which speaks to the entourage effect, sub subsorium microdosing. So all the studies that are going on, most all of them, not all of them, are with macrodosing. You're in a hospital environment, you're getting the 30 to 40 milligrams of psilocybin, you have nurses, you have, you know, a therapist, you know, you have a highly controlled room with music and lighting, everything is controlled. This is also people in a non-controlled setting. So you'd think in a non-controlled setting, the influence and the data, the signal would be diluted. So even though we have all these confounders, we're seeing this statistical significance. So I think that answers your question, Stephen. So we are planning publication. Um, and we're real excited, and this is the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot more data that's being unveiled, uh, and it will be unveiled in, in our papers. So which is better, psilocybin mushrooms or psilocybin? Well, the argument can be made that psilocybin mushrooms are widely available. They're affordable. They're not controlled by pharmas, grown at home, long-established uh, cultural use, the entrepreneurship benefit, which I spoke about, and the appeal of a natural form. The disadvantages of psilocybin is it's not yet widely available. It's outside of clinical trials. It's controlled by pharma. Who knows if it's affordable? Right now, it's ten to $20,000 for a therapeutic session, is I think the going rate. And the funding is primarily by investors who want to make money, as opposed to now, there are advantages and to, this, to the pharmaceuticals. The disadvantage of psilocybin mushrooms is variability, which I've mentioned, contamination due to molds and bacteria. This is my number one concern, is uh, people getting spoiled mushrooms that are dried down that have endotoxins from bacteria. In that uh, case- That's a very, very severe uh, potential threat. Yes, Mark. So one question about that is like, it's just a public service announcement. Is there a way to tell if you find a way to get some psilocybin mushrooms, is there a way to tell if it's been contaminated with mold or bacteria for the average person out there? The average person, no. And you speak to a need. Should there be a way to tell? Yes. And that is by having psilocybin. That's why if we had CGMP um, approved psilocybin mushroom production facilities that are responsible for their product that are inspected by Canada Health or the FDA in the United States, um, then the uh, public health uh, it will be better supported um, than the underground market right now. And I just know I, you know, at Burning Man or something. I'm very careful, and I don't accept any souls that much in my possession. But I have had people come up saying, "Hey, do these look good to you?" Hmm. And I give them all the all the caveats and all the all the disclaimers, you know, that are necessary legally in case I'm being taped. Um, I'm happy to say about eight out of 10 times, the quality of the material was superb. I mean, absolutely, people knew what they're doing. Two out of 10 times, it was necrotic tissue, black and full of bacteria and dried. And I just told them, don't dare eat these. These are really badly contaminated. Um, and so FYI, uh, this is a legitimate concern. So th there's no accountability in the underground market. 
the lack of confidence, you know, for consumers. The one I don't list that I'm a it really concerns me is that the underground market doesn't pay taxes. Mm. They're using our roads, they're using our health system, they're using the post office, they're using the fire department when our house catches on fire, but they're not stacking up their plate to pay taxes. All of us other people are paying taxes. So to me, that's a really big issue. Um, but the, the, the quality controls that the pharmaceutical industry brings to the table is CGMP standards. The content's guaranteed, impurities are minimized. It is controlled by the pharmaceutical companies. So in this case, they have accountability and there's confidence by the consumers. So it's interesting that you have this narrative of uh, polar opposites, both of which have advantages and disadvantages. And I think with psilocybin mushrooms, the disadvantages could be standardized provided the government comes in to create the structures. Now, this is not to say that people are going to stop growing psilocybin mushrooms at home. I'm not saying that they will be, and I'm not inviting the government to prosecute people, to be very clear, but governmental controls in terms of food safety is something that serves the public interest. You know, you want to make sure the fish you're eating, the shelf, the oysters you're eating, don't have red tide. You want to make sure that you're not going to get die or harmed from taking a substance that didn't have high quality control. So we need those quality controls in place. So there is a pathway for drug development uh, that we can standardize botanical products uh, to give you approval for the FDA. So to me, I think this creates the ecosystem that we're dealing in is people medicine versus profit medicine. Beautiful. And I'm very concerned Right now, I've had to serve seven cease and desist letters, primarily to companies in Canada that have put my name on psilocybin products, selling them over the internet. Mm. They didn't ask me, they didn't inform me, I knew nothing about it until people started sending copies of this. And so I told my lawyers, I had to take the alpha position. They're endangering me. They're exploiting my name. Um, they're doing it for money. They can say they're doing it for the people, but you know that's so full of BS. Their primary motivation is for, for profit. Absolutely. So yeah. in the profit medicine is what these, these new startup companies are involved in. Uh, Dr. Pam and I look at these startup companies and oftentimes there's not a single physician. It's people that have never had any history in this movement. They have no credibility. And mm. some of them are blatant in their disclosures mm -hmm. that they have created this company in order to exploit an economic opportunity that is so antithetical to the message of the mushrooms. That, so, that's what, yeah, that's I, what I'm hearing um, as well. You know, and it's the same thing that happened in Canada with cannabis too. All these yeah. big, you know, profit-making people came into it and ended up getting disappointed. But that's another issue. And by the way, people medicine versus profit medicine is the title of your talk that you're going to be doing at the uh, Spirit Plant Medicine Conference on October 23rd to 25th, right, Paul? Yes, it is. So, yeah. um, but I mean, this is the good news is. You know, I call it the 80-20 principle. You can call it the 90-10. 80% of the people involved in this psilocybin ecosystem are good people. Mm -hmm. they are, their lives have been changed. They're, they're there for the right reason. Some of them just want to jump on the bandwagon. You know, you want to jump on the train of popularity. You know, 20% of them are have very Machiavellian interests. They don't give a flying F about the people that they're, they're going to help. They see it as an economic opportunity to make money. 
Uh, and with that, with that, my biggest concern is with these startup companies and these for-profit pharmaceuticals that have gone uh, to sell stock and even on, on their stock exchanges, they have an obligation, unless they're a B corporation, they have an obligation to maximize profits from their investors. Any other competitive company, including me, could be seen as a threat to their own line. So when they have $100 million in their war chest, this is the classic example of our president and the contractors in New York City. He refused to pay them, and then he just avalanched them with lawsuits, and the legal expenses exceeded the cost of the invoice they're arguing about. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, this sort of this sort of Machiavellian uh, aggressive actions against other people in the landscape because they could erode their profits is a very, very sinister reality of capitalism. And so I am going to be and am very active in this space. We are applying for a DEA license in the United States. So we'll be CGMP um, producing psilocybin mushrooms. I have six patents meandering through the patent office uh, for the novelty of the inventions. And I'm going to use these ultimately in the best way possible to benefit the commons and to steer this uh, the spirit medicine into uh, a capitalistic ecosystem in the best way that I know how. Um, so I ask people to trust me on that. Um, I, I feel like my mission is sacred and important, but at the same time, you know, I didn't get two black belts from laying down. You know, I, I, I like the Ikea approach uh, to business and with respect and gratitude and kindness has always been the way I've navigated my principles. And um, if I have to go to the mat with these uh, Machiavellian uh, farmers, um, watch out. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny they mentioned Ikea. I spent 22 years at Ikea, so I understand their business approach very well. <laughs> um, but it, it's funny. One thing I just, I, I heard a quote the other day. It might have been yesterday or the day before, and it really stuck with me. And I think it's really quite appropriate in this moment. To, and I just wanted to share and, and see what your thoughts are behind it. Um, because you said how you're all about the science, too. And I can't remember who said it, but the quote is pretty much, Science is worthless without the spirit behind it. Yeah, that's All a right. good one. And I, I, that's very close to what I've been saying for years and mm-hmm. what I believe is right now we have a, a convergence of science and spirituality. Mm-hmm. And at this new nexus junction, I mean, I'm an amateur astronomer. I love, love astronomy. Who could not feel more spiritual looking at the hundreds of billions of galaxies in all forms with the exploration of, of, black, of, of dark matter and, and black holes and, and the time uh, dis- distortion fields based on gravity and looking at these lenses and the you're seeing from stars uh, are maybe 100 million years old. That star may not have this. And we're at the coincidence with the space-time of this convergence of realities some of which may not even exist now, um, how not feel more spiritual to me? So I think we're at this, this new stage in the evolution of the human species for a paradigm and consciousness where we can best of science and to realize the nature that around us 
uh, spiritual universe in which we live. And we just need to respect and honor that and very, very careful with these sacred medicines. And I am the first to admit that I've made mistakes. I make mistakes, um, but I am trying to do this in a way that's faithful um, to how I see these mushrooms speak through me. And, um, and I think about it constantly. So um, I hope the whole movement remains diversified. Uh, I believe in people medicine. I think harm reduction and public safety and doing this legally and pay your friggin' taxes, folks. <laughs> uh, yeah. And no, no freeloaders, okay? We all know about freeloaders. No freeloaders here. If you be in this ecosystem, you need to, to, to make sure that you're a responsible citizen, uh, not only economically, but also ecologically. Paul, this is this has been amazing. I'm, I, I really feel deep gratitude for the work you have been doing and are continuing to do. It's incredible and it's very inspiring and it's, it's essential work that you're doing. So uh, deep gratitude. Thanks so much, Paul. It's a truly a team effort. Um, I want to give a few shout outs uh, to, to Francois, to, to, um, to Hayden, to Dr. Pam Crisco, uh, to uh, Zach, Zach Walsh, to my good buddy, uh, David Bronner, uh, Dr. Bronner's, to Roland Griffiths from John Hopkins. Um, these are all pioneers in this field who are walking a tightrope, but they are, uh, they are strong in their purpose. They're strong in their wisdom. Uh, and I think they understand the importance of the work that's being done is far greater than any one individual, any one company. We are on this earth ship together. And uh, I think collectively we make a really positive dif difference to help us steer us out of this mess. So I think psilocybin are, and mushrooms uh, and psilocybin molecules and analogs are genius molecules. These are Einstein molecules. They can increase our intelligence. And uh, we need to preserve the intelligence of our elders uh, because we need to be able to pass this information on to younger generations. And we need to lead by example, not by exception. Beautiful. Well said. Thank you so much, Paul. It's it's always a pleasure to to hear what what you have to share and and the way you back it up with the science and the information. And I got to say, by far one of our most interesting interviews in the sense that you brought your slides and your videos and everything. So you brought our technology up a game too. So I thank you for that. That's always exciting. But I, I do appreciate the the work that you do and and your you know your contribution to our conference coming up as well. Um, I don't know how much time you got, and I think, Stephen, if there's anything else you want to say, and then we can wrap it up for the day. Uh, no, I, you know, I had a few more questions, but uh, I, th I thought you wanted to keep this uh, in within well, the frame. Well, I did, but I wasn't as as long as as long as Paul was talking. I'm not going to interrupt him. I'm not going to cut him off. We're going to, you know, I, I'm happy to go, and I'm just really grateful. And, and yeah. the information, uh, paulstamets.com, you can. Uh, get more information there. We'll have a whole page and some information as we share this um, on Conscious Living Radio. We, uh, mushroomreferences.com is another uh, website that Paul has uh, referenced for us as well for more information. And if you have any other um, you know, final words before we sign off, Paul, um, this would be a great time. No, I just want to uh, gratitude uh, to all of you. Gratitude for Indigenous peoples and First Nations who have suffered so much under these, this, this sacred knowledge. And uh, even my um, Indigenous people from Europe 
Uh, you know, the, many of the of the early Europeans were, were attacked and also sub, subjugated because this, this medicine was so powerful and such a force against authoritarianism uh, that they tried to suppress it. And just from the heroic efforts and bravery and resilience of indigenous people worldwide, that these threads of knowledge continue to exist. Let's weave this into a fabric of wisdom that we can pass on and, and uh, help generations into the future. So thank, thank you so much. Great, thank, thank you, you, Paul. And if you wanna see more of what Paul has to offer at our Spirit Plant Medicine Conference in the two short weeks, we start October 23rd to 25th. We're going on a virtual platform and uh, we're, we're excited about that. Uh, we do have, if you visit uh, www.spiritplantmedicine.com, you can use Stamets 2020 as a discount code. You'll get a discount there. And you, we would just want to thank Paul uh, again. And I thank you, Stephen. Always a pleasure to co-host with you. And yeah, Spirit Plant Medicine Conference, October 23rd to 25th. You've been listening to Conscious Living on CFRO 100.5 FM here in Vancouver. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Take care, everyone.